made for autistic people, parents and carers of kids on the autism spectrum. This is a different brilliant with Orion Kelly. No two autistic people are the same. Open conversations that inform and engage a better place for autistic An Aspect people. podcast focusing on the strengths, interests and aspirations of the autistic community. Welcome to a different brilliant. Thank you so much for listening to A Different Brilliant. I'm your host, Orion Kelly, and I'm autistic. A Different Brilliant is an Aspect podcast. That's Autism Spectrum Australia, or Aspect, and it's made for autistic adults and parents or carers of kids on the autism spectrum. My purpose is to inspire, inform, and entertain you through focusing on the strengths, interests, and aspirations of the autistic community. And if you're not autistic but you're open to learning more, well, You've come to the right place. Open, open, open. open, honest and engaging conversations on autism. A different brilliant with Orion Kelly. To learn more, catch up on the episodes or send us a message. Like the Aspect page on Facebook or visit autismspectrum.org.au. Now on part one of this episode, we explore the topic of women and girls on the spectrum. Over a two-part episode, we'll discuss why women have been traditionally underrepresented on the autism spectrum and what it's like to be an autistic woman. My guest on this episode is Dr. Fiona Aldridge. Fiona is a clinical psychologist and the clinical team leader of Aspect Assessments. Fiona, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. As an autistic male, it's interesting for me because this episode being about women and girls, it's funny because I know that traditionally... Males are diagnosed for the most part uh, in childhood. For me, it was you know midlife in effect, and I kind of mm. I kind of view myself as a potential lost generation. But from what yeah. I'm from what I'm reading from your work, it's actually even worse for women and girls. So, as a starting point, could you take us through the history? Give us some background on how women and girls have traditionally been assessed and diagnosed for autism. Yeah, sure. I mean, I would agree with you that that in general, um, diagnosing anything other than the, the kind of very classic, more severe or more marked presentations historically has been been fairly poor. I think there will be lots of people of, of either male or female in, in your kind of situation, but I would also agree that the situation is probably a lot worse for women. And historically, autism was really considered to be much, much more prevalent in um, males and females. And in the kind of 1980s, it was thought to be something like 15 times more common in men than females for women. So often people weren't really looking at it or considering it for women who might present with social skills difficulties or, or other problems. Um, and then that's slowly that kind of ratio or understanding of, of how many women might, might present sorry, with autism has been kind of slowly coming down over time and now we would consider it to be more like three to one, so a much more even kind of presentation um, because of this feeling that autism wasn't particularly common in females. Often, traditionally, it was assessed in much the same way as it was in males, so there wasn't a lot of allowance made for any potential differences in presentation of autism between 
males and females. It was assumed, I guess, pretty much that autism looked the same, whether you were male or female and even, I guess, what age you were and things like that. So the process wasn't really adjusted on that on that basis. What's really interesting for me too, as just, a, I guess, an observer, no research, no, no education in, in mm. the field is, as a male autistic person, I kind of think, Oh no, like for me looking in, it seems like potentially, traditionally, women and girls have been given like a male skewed test almost or a male skewed view. And that's really. That really doesn't make any sense to me, and I, I've kind of, as it dawned on me, I thought this is this is horrible. Like, as I know how bad yeah. it was to go half my life undiagnosed. I'm happy to tell everyone it was, you know, it's it's yeah. it's a great feeling being diagnosed because you you can look back and you have two lives really. So I I feel really bad yeah, for sense. I feel really bad for the women and girls historically that have had those issues, and I guess it comes down to presentation. And from your point of view, could you tell us a bit about how autism presents differently in, in women and girls? I'm assuming it does, but because you've mentioned it does, but ha- how, yeah. how does it? I say it definitely does. And I think in more recent research, um, we now know that that kind of historical assumption just wasn't correct um, and that there are differences. And I, I agree, I think it, it does mean a great many people have been been missed or misunderstood. And I think we're now understanding that while both males and females on the autism spectrum have the same kind of core characteristics of autism, so that is social skills difficulties, uh, difficulties understanding social context, social communication challenges, and restricted or repetitive behaviours, the way that those specific behaviours or presentation looks can be very different. And you're right, I think just if you're looking at it through a kind of male bias or skew, that that would mean people would be missed. So I think some of those kind of examples, if you look at kind of social communication and social communication skills, we now know that females often present with much better kind of expressive social behaviour. So I guess what I mean by that is things like being able to have a more of a kind of social chit-chat or kind of be able to maybe express themselves socially a bit better. But we know that despite that, they still have the same difficulties of understanding what's expected of them in social situations or picking up on the nuances of social situations. So the social understanding is still poor and still causes a lot of difficulty and and impairment, but because they might be able to communicate around some of their social needs or look a bit more social, if that makes sense, that that lack of understanding can be missed. Um, We also know that friendship difficulties can present a bit differently in females than males. So it's not uncommon for, for females on the spectrum to maybe present with things like being quite possessive of friends. So they, they form some friends, but they're quite possessive of them or controlling of the interactions. The interactions have to go a certain way. Otherwise, they're not quite sure of, of what to do. Um, and I think kind of similarly, the research suggests that perhaps some females on the spectrum just have a, a bit of a higher interest in social relating, maybe more seek more kind of social interactions, but again, still struggle with that social understanding that allows them to kind of follow through. And another difference kind of socially is maybe around the kind of play. So researchers kind of suggest to us that um, girls on the spectrum don't necessarily have the same difficulties with imaginative play that was traditionally or historically seen in young boys on the spectrum. 
And I think another thing that's interesting and perhaps speaks to a bit of this is that, and I think the research in this area is really quite new, so I don't think we understand it particularly well in either males or females, but there is some suggestion that females on the spectrum report a higher camouflaging or masking of symptoms, that they really study what other people are are doing and mirror and mimic back what other people are doing in an attempt to kind of fit in and do the right thing because it's not coming naturally to them. And the the consequence of that is in an assessment situation, it might look quite good even though it isn't coming kind of naturally or easily to them. Um, And then in terms of the behavioural component of, of autism, I think the research is starting to suggest that in general, um, females tend to have less of the really stereotypical or really kind of common autism spectrum repetitive behaviours like lining objects up or hand flapping. They just seem to occur less frequently in, in females and the nature of things like obsessions can be a bit different. So it, it seems to be that while females on the spectrum definitely report those very strong interests and, and obsessions, it, they tend to be a bit more mainstream in in nature often. So things like animals or a particular movie. So it doesn't look unusual in terms of topic, but the intensity and the way that it might intrude on someone's life is still is still problematic. And to me, this is the beauty and the tragedy of, of neurodiversity in the same sentence because it's amazing that, every, like we always say, you know, one person on the autism spectrum is one person on the autism spectrum. Yep. Everyone is just utterly different. And that makes presentation really hard for healthcare professionals. But to me, it just shows that we can't get into a situation where we're placing different levels of value on a diagnosis. If you're being diagnosed with autism, ASD, it doesn't matter what number it is, it's a diagnosis and regardless of how you present, regardless of whether you do and don't have things like this guy does all this and this woman doesn't do that, but mm. she does it. This is where I hope we're heading, which is there's a diagnosis and that's that and there's not this kind of value of it because I think it's tricky for by the sounds of what you're saying for women and girls their presentation differences seem to be causing real barriers to diagnosis Uh, is that right how does that filter through to to the actual diagnosis when they do as you say have all these different presentations I, I, I mean, I agree with you. I think it definitely does mean that there are some have been. I think still, and I, you know, I guess I, I too am hopeful that we are slowly breaking it down and changing the situation because I agree with you that a diagnosis is a diagnosis, and there's got kind of we don't want a situation where there's value more or less depending on when it's made or or the exact nature of it. But I think these barriers have been caused exactly because the the way that women present is often less classic. It's less of what people kind of know and understand of, of autism. And in some ways, you know, being able to camouflage or mask compensate for the difficulties probably has some benefits in terms of fitting in, but we know it also has a number of costs in terms of the, the strain and stress it puts someone under and perhaps mental health difficulties that it could create about anxiety, about whether they're doing it correctly and things like that. And I think too, I think we also probably, society probably still now, but definitely historically has had a tendency to have a different expectation, I guess, for girls and boys 
whether neurotypical or, or neurodiverse. And so things like it might be seen as more typical or more acceptable for a young girl to be shy and to not be as, as outgoing as a young boy. And so therefore, if they were having social skill difficulties, it might have just been attributed to more being shy rather than actually having some real challenges or struggles. So I think, yeah, it's probably down to a lot of of barriers like that. I think we're still trying to work a lot of this out. Research is still quite emerging, but there definitely are a number of of barriers that have been there. And that I think as a health professional working in this area, we're really trying to work now to, to amend or adapt assessment processes to acknowledge that and to acknowledge, I guess, for males and females, but also acknowledging what you say, that everyone on the autism spectrum is different. So we need to make sure that we're not, I guess, just doing ticker box and that we're really understanding the person and their story and the difficulties that they've had over time to see whether a, a diagnosis would be relevant. And I think a really important part of that is speaking with adults and research that looks into adults that were diagnosed perhaps later in life to understand, you know, what it was like for them and how they um, experienced the, the symptoms, I guess, because they, you know, that adds a great amount of knowledge and understanding to the condition that you just don't get without yeah. input from people on the spectrum themselves. Yeah, absolutely. You know, for, for me personally, the waiting half my lifetime, it was a massive positive, a weight lifted off my shoulder. But prior to that, with not being diagnosed or even knowing that was an, a possibility, it was tiring beyond the point of being able really to carry on living. It was just tiring. I was just over it. Masking for me was probably one of the most tiring things I did, but I was doing it not because I thought I was autistic, but I was doing it because clearly my behaviour wasn't wasn't doing well with friends or workplaces. Yep. So, and I yeah. can I can understand if potentially women and girls with emotional intelligence or whatever it is are better at it. I can imagine a diagnosis for them would just be life changing. And I, I want to kind of talk about. The age-old question, why have women been traditionally underrepresented on the autism spectrum? It's one of those big questions. I'd love you to unpack your research on this topic. So first up, what was the focus of your research and, and how did you go about doing it? Yeah, so we were really interested in that question of, you know, why? And I guess not so much why in terms of, you know, is there something very different about the way that females present, but more is there something in the diagnostic process and the diagnostic system that makes a particular barrier? Is there a kind of a roadblock, I guess, at some point in a, in the diagnostic pathway that leads to this delay um, for women? And we conceptualise the diagnostic pathway as being kind of, you know, parents or caregivers or someone becomes concerned about the individual and then that's the first step. The next step is they would then consult a health professional or their GP, an early childhood nurse, a counsellor or whoever um, with those concerns. And then from there, I guess it either goes to, to kind of reassurance or being told that there is no diagnosis or to further assessment and then eventually to a diagnosis being given or not. So we were kind of, we were interested in this question of is there a particular spot in this pathway where there is a difference for, for males and females? And we're also just concerned is, is the age of, of diagnosis different for uh, kind of an Australian sample? Um, also, I guess whether the severity is different. Like, is it the case that, that males are presenting more severely? Therefore, it's kind of, I guess, more overt or more obvious. And is that part of the explanation of 
of what was going on. So we looked at this by collecting data um, as part of our assessment process. You know, really interestingly, one of the main findings that we had, and this is exactly consistent with previous research, is that there was a significant difference for males and females in amongst those 246 people that we looked at and with um, males being diagnosed significantly younger, about 12 months younger on average. I think it's also worth noting that it was about six years, nine months for males, the average age of diagnosis in our sample and around seven years, 10 months for females, which, you know, is still in some ways later than we would, I would like to see as a clinician because we know the earlier, the better in terms of assisting people. But so it's kind of late for everyone, but even later for females. And another interesting thing kind of related to that, and again, consistent with, with past findings, has, was that we found a, a ratio of about three to one in terms of males to females diagnosed with autism in our samples. So saying it is about for every one female diagnosed, there were three males diagnosed. So it is more common, or was more common in our sample at least in in males and females, but at that much lower level than has been historically. And we also didn't find any difference in severity levels. So if we're thinking about, well, is it the case that females are just a really, you know, much more subtle, milder presentation? We didn't find that. We found that there were a similar number of kind of level one, level two, level three diagnoses as defined by the DSM-5 for both males and females, which suggests that both males and females present, as we would expect, I guess, across that full range of severities that's available. And so our findings in terms of around the age of diagnosis for females, is there a significant difference? And severity levels was really similar to kind of previous research and studies in other countries, for example. And didn't necessarily give any more insight into to why a delayed diagnosis might be occurring for females. But when we looked at that diagnostic pathway that I mentioned a minute ago, and we tried to say, well, is there at a point where there is a different length between these steps for males and females? That's where we did find a difference. You know, interestingly, we found that parents typically reported being first concerned about the, the person at a, a similar kind of age, around two years for both males and females. So parents were getting that inkling or caregivers or someone involved in that that person's life was getting that feeling that something was a little bit different at around that kind of age. But then interestingly, there was a real significance in the amount of time it then took for people to consult a health professional around those concerns. So for males, it it seemed that people on average were consulting a health professional around, you know, nine months or so after they first had concerns. So they might have noticed that and then observed and watched for a while and then at around nine months contacted someone else in relation to that. But for females, it was it was much lo- significantly longer at about 17 months. Then there was about the same time after consulting that health professional, it was about the same time until that person then got the formal diagnosis. But there was that delay and you know, it suggests that parents do respond a bit differently to these kind of concerns. Maybe it is to do with that kind of social expectations and it's a bit okay, more okay for girls to be more socially reserved or shy. Maybe they're attributing it to kind of different things other than the possibility of autism. Maybe it is because 
you know, some of those restricted or unusual behaviours occur less in females. So things that might, I guess, appear more more different, like hand flapping, maybe is less common. So stands out a bit less. This research didn't really look at, at why, but it, it is interesting to, to kind of identify where that gap is because you know, it could tell us a bit about how we could address this going forward. Such compelling research. It's fascinating to, to listen to. With regards to the research, did you have any, any recommendations, any things you think need to be done to improve the assessment and diagnosis of autism amongst women and girls because I think one of the things that I, I picked up from you was educating parents to really to seek help they would for a son to do for a daughter. Yeah, so I guess it is really, I think that's a really key thing is around educating, I guess not just parents but also other people that might be involved in, in kids' lives like um, preschool teachers or early childhood nurses or GPs to as well as parents and caregivers to to know what um, autism might look like in girls and the differences, how, you know, what I guess some of the red flags are and that that might not be exactly the same as what you'd expect for a young boy. And I guess to encourage people to, to speak out if they have concerns, I guess, from a kind of health professional point of view, would much rather someone went and asked questions, even if it then turned out to not be that or to be nothing, but to have a chat with someone who might might know more about it at that early point when they're first concerned rather than kind of waiting to maybe things have got a bit more difficult or, or more challenges have, have arisen. So I guess that real education of people working and living with, with young kids is one. And I think it's important that health professionals and people involved in the diagnosis of autism really understand these differences as well and understand what the subtle differences are and that, you know, you might need to ask some additional questions in your assessment process or you might need to say that their presentation on an assessment tool like the ADOS might look quite different because we know that there are differences, that girls might appear much more social, they might be better able to mask or camouflage eye contact, although I know that lots of males will also say they do that particularly older. So, but I think it's about trying to understand that difference and and how that might what that might look like in the clinical context, so that assessment tools can be used appropriately. Because at this stage, at least, we don't have separate sets of norms or expectations for assessment tools. The same tools are used. It's about the skill of the clinician applying it to understand that difference and to know what the differences would look like. So I think education kind of across the board, I guess, of, of these differences is really important, along with research into, well, how is it best to conduct these assessments? These tools were developed historically more on on male presentations, how what adjustments need to be made and, and how can that be done to give a more, I guess, accurate assessment. And I think it's also, as I kind of mentioned before, I think we need to listen to to adults, both male and female, but in this instance, particularly females, about their experiences and how it presented for them so that we can use that along with your more data-driven research, I guess, as well as that more anecdotal to, to have a good understanding of the presentation and the differences. Such an important conversation that has to continue. And I, look, I've really enjoyed our chat. Thank you so much for your time, Fiona. Thanks, Ryan. My guest on part one of this episode was clinical psychologist and the clinical team leader of Aspect Assessments, Dr. Fiona Aldridge. A Different Brilliant with Orion Kelly. No two autistic people are the same. 
an Aspect podcast focusing on the strengths, interests and aspirations of the autistic community. Thank you for listening to A Different Brilliant. I really do appreciate it. And I hope this episode has inspired, informed, and entertained you. And if the episode has resonated with you, please share it with your family and friends so we can reach more people. And if you'd like to continue the conversation, just like the Aspect page on Facebook or visit autismspectrum.org.au. You're also welcome to send me a message via my website, orionkelly.com.au. A Different Brilliant is an Aspect podcast focusing on the strengths, interests and aspirations of the autistic community. Executive producers are Lisa Cassidy and Dr. Tom Tutton. I'm Orion Kelly, and I look forward to celebrating the neurodiversity of autistic people and providing a voice for the autistic community on the next episode of A Different Brilliant. Thanks for listening to A Different Brilliant with Orion Kelly an Aspect podcast on the strengths, interests and aspirations of the autistic community. Our door is open anytime. So like the Aspect page on Facebook or visit autismspectrum.org.au. My aim, make the world a better place for autistic people.